when was the last time you played? I play every day. For me, work is play. And so helping organizations, doing research, building tools, all of that to me is just such a great deal of fun that the last time I played is like right now. <laughs> I love that because work should be much more playful for all of us, right? Well, that's what the research says. Our our research and our book, Prime to Perform, is on what motivates performance. And the answer is relatively simple, that why we do something determines how well we do that thing. Mm. And one of the reasons why people do things is because it's fun. Yeah. And so when you do work because of play, you actually perform better at it. Of course, work should be play. Welcome to Lead with a Dash of Play. Here we talk about the how and why of reclaiming playfulness as adults in order to build more connected, innovative, and human-centered workspaces. Isn't that what leadership is all about? I'm your host, Mary Hendra. Let's play. My guest today is Neil Doshi. Neil has done extensive research on motivation and performance and uses that research to guide companies as the co-author of Prime to Perform and co-founder of Vega Factor. Our conversation comes back to play again and again, while also reaching to the not-so-distant future of automation and what that means for our jobs, leaders, and organizations. Neil, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, Mary. Thank you for having me. In my experience, people often perceive this binary between work and play. Have you encountered that kind of resistance as well when you talk about play in professional settings? Absolutely. I'll give you an interesting example. We were asked by one of the world's largest hedge funds to help them apply our research on motivation and performance to their hedge fund. And you can imagine that these types of organizations like a hedge fund, performance is, is the only thing. It's measured on a second-by-second -second basis. Millions of dollars ride on every single bet or action that a portfolio manager takes. So performance is everything. And I remember we did a set of research on these portfolio managers. And we found that, we found exactly what our research always finds that the ones that saw their work as play outperformed the ones that didn't. Mm -hmm. In fact, the ones that didn't find their work as play were far more likely to be taking risks that were not just dangerous, but sometimes illegal. Ooh. And so I remember we were, we were sharing this with the leader of this hedge fund. And he says to me, Neil, I just don't get it. Like, how could work, how could play be the driver of work? And I said to him two things. I said, one, do you think that if someone finds their work boring, they're going to outperform someone who doesn't? <laughs> and he's like, okay, of course not. That makes sense. <laughs> and then the second thing I said to him is, you, have, you are one of the most successful people on the planet. Like you've made more money than 99.9999999% of humanity yeah. and you still trade. Why do yeah. you do it? He's like, well, it's fun. <laughs> and I said, okay. So that mindset is what made you one of the most successful investors on the planet. Yeah. Why do you think that it's not capable? That's not a capable mindset for anyone else. 
Um, and those were really eye-opening questions for him. Yeah. Um, that really helped him start to realize that this dichotomy that people have is not psychologically accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And we should probably pause right now because some people, when we think of or we talk about play in an office, they have this image of ping pong tables and, you know, organizations, tech companies, Silicon Valley that that has that kind of stuff. Um, but you share some different examples in your book. You talk about Zappos and Southwest Airlines encouraging their people to treat each customer interaction as play. Can you share a little bit more about that and and what you mean by play? Yeah, absolutely. Our our research is on the the very tight and detailed relationship between motivation and performance. And what it clearly says is that play is the strongest the strongest motive when driving performance. By far, by the way. Like our research says it is by far stronger than someone who believes in the mission of their organization even. Yeah. Now, but that what that means though is it's play for the work, not some distraction from the work. So right. for example, the ping pong table isn't the play motive when it comes down to performance. Unless that's that person's job to be a professional <laughs> ping pong player, it's not the work. Yeah. The kombucha on tap, that's not the work. Yeah. And this is where a lot of organizations are getting it wrong. That fundamentally, if you want to if you want people to be engaged in their work, you have to make their work engaging. That's yeah. it. That's the whole thing. The secret of engaged work is making the work engaging. And what does it mean to make work engaging? You have to help people find the play of the work that they have to do. Mm. Now, this isn't, this isn't, it's not easy to do, but it's also not hard to do. Like it's, it's not impossible. Yeah. And if there's a general recipe that I try to help an organization find is that every role, even the ones that are wrote, there's every role has an aspect of the role where either we should be finding ways to improve our performance. Okay. Yep. That's not wrote at all. That's all novelty. Yeah. Or we should be addressing variation in the work that the rote side of it can't handle. Right. Also, all that's new. All of that is fertile ground for play because fundamentally, when you think about play, it is where one finds novelty, curiosity, learning some this is all about something new and different yeah everyone's job has new and different so if we can tap into that side of that job structure it a bit create space for it create um manage it i mean these aren't these aren't super complicated concepts but even just manage it you can get a significant lift in motivation and performance it strikes me in the way that you're describing it that you did not say like, we need to hire playful people. You said, we need to think about the structures and the systems we are creating. And then you also said like, we need to manage for it. First off, I love that because we are saying like, it's our job as leaders to think about structures and systems and we can structure and systematize things in a way that supports a motivation of play. Do I have that accurate? And how do you help organizations think about that if that's true? Yeah, I, I think you do have it accurate. I think that I'll start with how do you not do it? And then, because that's easy to understand. <laughs> First, anything that's not the work is in play. And that's important to realize that the ping pong table is in play, but I'll be controversial if you don't mind. Yeah. A lot of what I see organizations call gamification is in play because it's not fun. Okay. I mean, that's it at the end yeah. of the day. Like, if it's not fun, it's not play. 
Yeah. If it's not fun in the work, it's not play. If it's something extra from the work, something separate from the work, and it's not fun, it's not play. Yeah. If it's not play, it's not a game. Like calling something a game is not what makes it fun. Right. And so that's kind of point number one. Point number two is there's many ways down the path, but I'll tell you the path that I choose the most often when, when I'm working with an organization. I usually will try to operationalize a very simple principle. I would like to create for any team in an organization a model where everybody on that team has at least one useful idea every week. Ooh, that seems the low bar, just one useful idea. It's not a high bar. Yeah. If you think about most, most orgs, though, it's sadly zero. And not because... It, not because these colleagues can't have them. Yeah. It's because we don't manage it. Now we have to kind of unpack that. What does useful mean? Like yeah. useful means it creates value. Right. You, we use the idea. We implemented it. Imagine a workforce where every single person has one useful idea every week. This not only solves for the play motive, it solves for the second motive too, purpose. Okay. Now the purpose motive is one that is equally misunderstood by a lot of companies. A lot of companies think the purpose motive is we have a big mission statement and you're expected to be motivated by that. That's not really accurate. The more accurate understanding of the purpose motive is you do not feel fungible. You don't Mm -hmm. feel like a cog in the machine. Like the more accurate way of thinking about the purpose motive is you believe your contribution matters. That really resonates for me because I know so many organizations that hire for alignment with mission with that idea of purpose in mind saying like, okay, if you're aligned with our mission, that's it. But what I'm hearing from you is a bit different. Yeah. We would technically call that the potential motive, that alignment mm-hmm. with mission. Play purpose and potential are the three direct motives. They're all three, there are three positive motives. They improve performance, but in reality, play is significantly stronger than purpose. Purpose significantly stronger than potential. So much so that we rarely focus on potential when we're trying to turn around performance in a company. Okay. Think about it this way. We all know that exercising and eating healthy leads to a longer life. But this doesn't really change behavior. We Just know the it. knowledge. Yeah. We all know it. Because, <laughs> because longer life is a far away outcome from my activity. Mm. It's not an immediate outcome of my activity. That would yeah. be purpose. And it's not the activity itself that would be play. So, so in reality, rarely is someone driven to do healthy behaviors because they know it'll lead to a longer life. Instead, yeah. if you want to create healthy behaviors in yourself or people that you care about, that healthy behavior itself has to be high play. Yeah. It has to be fun. You have to enjoy it. And purpose would be it was immediately valuable, not eventually valuable. Yeah. And so when we're thinking about helping organizations create performance or cultural turnarounds, I don't really put any effort and potential because it is very weak as a motive. My focus on play and purpose. Play, the work is enjoyable. Purpose, your contribution matters. You believe you matter. If you didn't go to work that day, if you phoned it in that day, things that you think are important wouldn't happen then. Right. Not eventually, not kind of in five years, 10 years. Right. And so this construct of 
everybody should have a useful idea every week. It hits play and purpose. Play, the, the process of ideating, the seeing the novelty of your work, the allowing yourself to feel curiosity for it. Yeah. That's play. The usefulness of the idea. So we used it. It mattered. It, yeah. it, was, it added value to our team. Well, that's the purpose of it. Yeah. And so it's, to me, the closest we've ever found to a performance silver bullet. But you'd have to manage that now. You have to actually make that systematized. So let's talk about management for a little bit. And I was struck, I'll bring in one thing from your book that I that I have gone back to multiple times. And it's when you talk about the types of goals and you identify that there is the goal of like, do your best, right? And then there's a, a second goal of like the very tactical, like achieve 21% market share. And then there are the adaptive goals. And you you give the example of learn six new strategies for increasing market share. I particularly love that adaptive because it feeds a sense of curiosity and play in my mind of like, okay, what could be out there? How does it work? Could it work for us? How might I adapt it in different situations? And the results that you give are striking in looking at the difference of those three types of goal setting. What are the ways that you work with managers to get better at creating the structure for play and and managing for play as as the motivating factor. Yeah, absolutely, Mary. I'm working right now with a very large tech company that in many of its lines of businesses, they've plateaued, mm. which is inevitable. Like every product line eventually plateaus. It, it either achieves its full market or competitors come in and they're locked in, in a market share battle that will never really move. So just about every product will eventually plateau. When a product line plateaus, Continuous improvement of that product is simply playing defense. It's not going to get better. Mm. Or market share technically won't get better. But you still have to play defense. Now, to play offense, you have to have new products, new things that you're offering, new things that, new ways of solving your customers' problems. Yeah. Now, in this organization, they plateaued for some time and they were finding that their attempts at creating something new were all failing. And when you looked at why, it came down to the goal example that you shared. They'd essentially say to these organizations who are inventing, you have an OKR or a goal. And that goal is you need to increase EBITDA by 12% by the end of the year. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. And what they were finding is that these organizations were trying to essentially just squeeze blood out of the stone to yeah. hit these goals, not invent. And so what we essentially did was pretty simple in this case. We essentially created a, a process where the organization tracks the most important ideas of the organization at any given time. Mm. And those ideas are not fully fleshed, they're early, they're, they're rough thinking, but these are the ones where if we can make them successful, they would be how we play offense. They're the ones that will come next. Yeah. And we've essentially created a completely separate managerial rhythm around those ideas. That's not focused on, did I hit EBITDA? Yeah. That are focused on, are we experimenting at a good velocity 
to mm. mature those ideas faster and faster and faster. Uh, and so all of the coaching, all of the rhythms that are built around those ideas are not rhythms that are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Which is often how it feels, but are rhythms like, okay, let's, let's look at the idea. Let's pressure test the thinking. Let's come up with alternatives. Let's figure out how we can experiment faster. Let's figure out how we're going to learn faster. And learning velocity is really how that track is managed. I love that question of, are we experimenting at a good velocity? Uh, I think experimenting, playing, you know, new ideas can often be back burner, right? You know, because there's something urgent for the day. So I love that question to keep something more front of mind. In our book, we talk about the two types of performance, tactical and adaptive. This is an important concept. Like the tactical performance in an organization is the stuff that is process, policy, scripts, best practices. Right. And the adaptive is the stuff that's exactly not that. It, you can't yeah. do it via process, via script. You have to problem solve. You have to innovate. You have to be creative. In other words, tactical is how well we follow a plan and adaptive is how well we don't follow a plan. <laughs> right? So you have these two types of performance. They're both critical. Like if you've ever called a call center and you can tell they're reading a script back to you yeah. and the frustration you feel as a customer yes, because they're just not solving the problem. Right. Well, what you're seeing is an organization that doubled down on tactical and destroyed their adaptive yeah. because these two types of performance are definitionally the opposite. If you double down on one, you destroy the other. Right. Now, with that context in mind, we are in an era that I don't think enough business leaders have fully internalized. Within about 10 years, all forms of human tactical performance will be automated. Mm. If it is tactical performance, a machine will be doing it right. faster than people realize. If you're tracking the news today around chat GPT, it is already making automated things that would blow your mind. Oh. All forms of human tactical performance will be automated in 10 years. And I think that's, I'm quickly finding that that is an outside prediction, not an inside one. Mm. And so when you think about your organization and you think about the people in it, what's left is their adaptive performance. Now, one could argue this is both amazing and terrifying. Yeah. yeah. The amazing side of it is the adaptive performance was the stuff that was fun. Yeah. yeah. Like this is where play and purpose was. Yeah. And if every job had no rote components, but only adaptive components, that's absolutely amazing. Like that yeah. means that every job, it will be more intrinsically motivating. Yeah. That's yeah. the good news. The, the challenge, however, is the way organizations lead people, the way they apprentice people, the way they pay people, the way they structure work. Essentially, every aspect of an organization's operating model, which is really built more around managing tactical performance than adaptive, yeah. every aspect of an organization's operating model will have to change. Otherwise, that organization is the dinosaur in the story of the asteroid, not the mammal. Right. What I've started to do in the last couple of weeks is I've started to hold workshops with CEOs on why automation of knowledge work knowledge work specifically is 
going to be completely done within the next two years. Because I don't think companies are really seeing that they're not built for this. Yeah. And so all that to say, the way companies motivate has historically been built around tactical performance. I need you to follow your process. I need you to stick to your tasks. Yeah. So much of the machinery of organizations is task management. All of that is going to be obsolete very, very fast, mm. like really fast. And so what's left is you got to manage the adaptive. What does that mean? I've got to manage the velocity of experiments and ideas. I got to manage how we solve problems collaboratively and inclusively. Yeah. I've got to I've got to pay people on skill, not goals. Yeah. Like all of that machinery is changing. It has to change. Otherwise, an organization will find themselves as dinosaur, not mammal. Yeah, hmm. that's quite a challenge for CEOs to really embrace that and start taking action on it. What we find now is leading edge CEOs are already there. They're getting it and they're implementing significant change to lean into that future. Can you give an example of what a a leading CEO might be doing at this point? Sure. One is a CEO of a essentially a tech and services company saw this coming and three years ago, maybe four years ago, shifted the organization's whole talent system from from essentially the competency-based pay to skill-based pay. Um, skill-based pay is essentially, you don't have roles, you don't have titles, um, you don't have bands, you don't have annual performance reviews and competency ratings. Everyone's just paid on skill. And when you learn a new skill, you're paid more. Simple as that. Hmm. This How is, is that the, assessed? Uh, skill-based pay is essentially wonderful our our organization my company works on it too where the way it works is a colleague will choose what skills they want to learn they'll choose that in concert with their leader so they'll have a structured conversation around what's going to be most play what's going to be most purpose what's going to be most potential and they'll choose a skill they want to learn they the leader will help them create on the job opportunities so this isn't about training it's all about apprenticeship apprenticeship is on the job because at the end of the day, you don't really learn a skill through training. You close right. blind spots through training, but you don't learn a skill. You have to learn the skill by doing. And so the leader and that colleague will work on a, on opportunities and at-bats to learn that skill on the job. Yeah. When, that, when that colleague has demonstrated fluency in that skill, they are endorsed in it. And when they're endorsed, their comp goes up based on the value of the skill. Okay. And so what this does is it reduces significantly, reduces to the point of almost eliminating pay bias. Yeah. It encourages folks to learn new skills. It encourages adaptive performance. It it eliminates many of the distortions and COBRA effects, if you read our book, on normal pay systems. But this is an example of how the future of work has to change. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that example. The future of work does have to change. And that brought us back to management. If you have a high motivation team, people will lean into boring work and do it. And people will lean into overwhelming work and do it. So that motivation is really an important construct in this. Yeah. So as a leader, you have three dimensions to play with. 
Dimension one is I can modulate the difficulty of your work. Dimension two is I can modulate your skill, which is slower, that takes time. Yep. Dimension three is I can expand your motivation. Yeah. So as a leader, what you really need to do is you need to play with those three dimensions, often in real time. Yep. And if, you, if, the, if I kind of created a game for a leader, the game for a leader, I would say, is these are your three levers, the difficulty of the work, the motivation of the team, the skill of the colleague. Those are your yeah. three levers. The, the scoreboard of this game is that colleague had a useful idea every week. Nice. If you play that game, and maybe one week you're like, Neil, my scoreboard in that week was pretty low. Like, yeah. I didn't really have any. Okay, great. What, what plays are you going to do differently next week? Yeah. How, are you, how are you changing the game? You can reduce the challenge. You can, or increase the challenge, depending on the skill. Yeah. You can change the skill level. You can apprentice. You can kind of grow skill. You can do things to increase motivation. What yeah. gameplay are you playing next week? If a mm -hmm. leader thought of their job that way, the leader would have a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I even think of past teams that I've I've led and the individuals on that team in in relation to those three factors. Um, it is fun to be able to try and match, okay, what's gonna what's gonna motivate, what's gonna bring people in, what's gonna help each individual have those great ideas. Um, I, I think that's, that's funny. Fun. It's funny you call them factors, these three things, because what we've had to do to scale this is we've built a, a tech platform called Factor. Oh. <laughs> where the aim, the aim of that platform is to make it easy for a leader to modulate those three things, Yeah. to play this game, to essentially track, is everyone having a useful idea every week? <laughs> Should I reduce the challenge level? Should I increase the challenge level? Should I increase the motivation of the team? Should I work on their skill? Essentially, the purpose of Factor, the platform, is to make the process of driving performance fun. Love it. So how do people stay connected with you, continue to be inspired by you? Obviously, there's the book, but, but what are all the ways that people can um, learn from you and connect? What I'd recommend, Mary, is step number one is read Prime to Perform or or Google us in the Harvard Business Review. We published quite a lot in in the right. HBR and learn. Like that's step number one. Like open your eyes to both the the changing nature of work and the need for us to change how we motivate performance. Right. It's one of these things where there's a there's a old Navajo proverb which I I often think about in change management you can't wake up somebody who's pretending to be asleep. <laughs> and so step number one is you have to wake yourself up and read, learn. What I'd also recommend is start to share some of this with your colleagues. That's step yeah. number one. Yeah. Step number two is, and on step number one, by the way, if you, if you feel like you need someone to talk to your colleagues, reach out to us. Um, you can Google Vega Factor. That's the name of our organization. Um, you can Google me, Neil Doshi, you'll kind of find us there. Reach out. We often do talks for executives. We'll often coach executives. We'll help them start to understand and see this is inevitable. Yeah. That the asteroid has come. We have to evolve. Yeah. The that's step number one. 
Step number two is you have to start to take ground on how do you want to change systems. Essentially, talking about it isn't going to get the job done. Yeah. And and actually even having like an inspirational speech isn't going to get the job done. Yeah. You have to change systems. That's what organizations work in. People work in systems in their organizations. The if we don't change the system, things rarely ever change. The system usually changes things back. Yeah. Like most change management I see fail if it doesn't change the system in which we're working. Yeah. So step number 2 is change the system in which you're working. There's many ways to do that. Prime to Perform gives a bunch of examples. But if you really want to, if you really want this to feel paint by numbers, reach out to us and we'll set you up on the Factor platform. Because yeah. the Factor platform makes this paint by numbers. Our, our goal, our, our mission is we do see that all human work is becoming adaptive very, very fast. If organizations don't change their systems to support that, not only will they not survive, but the people in these organizations will suffer. Yeah. So our aim is to help organizations get to the other side of this change as fast as possible. And so we've tried to make it super easy, paint by numbers, to get teams to the other side of this. Yeah. So reach out to us. We'll put you on the platform or give you other learning materials or do talks. But there's so many possible levers to take the next step. There's no reason not to. Yeah. Fantastic. As we end, I I usually like to ask my guests, like, what's one invitation to play at work for our listeners? Do you have one in mind that you do or that you recommend to managers? It's related to the make sure everyone has a useful idea every week. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for managers to solve every problem for their team. Mm. What you would much rather do, you could do it today, is don't do that. Instead, frame the problem. Share the team. Okay, here's a problem mm-hmm. to solve. I'd like to get everyone's ideas for that and use their team's ideas to solve them, especially the easy ones. Yeah. Like the funny thing is, the easy problems are the ones that managers actually first solve on behalf of their teams. Like mm-hmm. if you're giving your team a task, what that means is you've solved the easy problem for them. Yeah. But then you've wasted the opportunity for them to have a useful idea. Yeah. The moment you give a colleague a task, you've wasted an opportunity for your colleague to have a useful idea. Yeah. And so that's the thing I'd recommend right now. Like go back to your teams, get out of task management, get out of that mindset. Instead, frame a problem, gather ideas, and have your colleagues solve it themselves. Love it. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast, Neil. Not all, Mary. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Lead with a Dash of Play podcast. Reza Zaidi and Joanna Stevens created and provided the beautifully playful and reflective music you hear in this podcast. The song is titled Holding Rain. This podcast was created out of curiosity and I hope you'll share your thoughts and questions with me. Email me at mary at maryhendra.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn, redefining play and reclaiming this leadership skill for its potential to bring authenticity and joy into our professional spaces. <laughs>